Arab Americans send Joe Biden a strong message in Michigan. We thought he would be somebody that would lead this country with humanity and compassion, uh, but instead it's been, uh, he's been leading with hypocrisy. Plus, aid for Ukraine is still stuck at the House of Representatives. I think the consequences of inaction every day in Ukraine are dire. And later, a look at America's political divisions and what's at stake. Plus an update from Kyiv as President Volodymyr Zelensky seeks to shore up support in the Balkans. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, and this is VOA's Flashpoint Global Crises. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. On Wednesday, the Israeli army released video footage said to show its soldiers fighting in the Gaza Strip, as well as airstrikes targeting Hamas militants' facilities. While VOA can't independently verify the footage, Israeli authorities say that it shows airstrikes on Hamas infrastructure that was used to launch rockets, an anti-missile post, and an operational command center. Meanwhile, in a rare televised speech, Ismail Haniyeh, the leader of Hamas, said that Hamas is being flexible in the ongoing peace negotiations, but is also ready to continue fighting if necessary. Additionally, in a move that could be seen as incitement, during ongoing peace negotiations, Haniyeh called on Palestinians in Jerusalem and the West Bank to march to the famous Al-Aqsa Mosque in the old city of Jerusalem to pray on the first day of Ramadan, which is March 10th. This is a call to our people in Jerusalem and West Bank and the occupied areas inside Israel to march toward Al-Aqsa Mosque for the first day of the holy month of Ramadan, in individuals and in groups, to pray and stay in the mosque and to break the siege of it. Israel said on Monday it would allow Ramadan prayers at the mosque, but set limits according to security needs, setting the stage for possible clashes if large crowds of Palestinians turn up, as suggested by Hanye. Elsewhere, negotiators push to secure a temporary ceasefire deal that would halt the Gaza war before Ramadan begins. And a message from Michigan signals anger at President Joe Biden's support of Israel's campaign that has killed almost 30,000 Palestinians. VOA's White House bureau chief, Patsy Widakuswara, has more. Israeli airstrikes continue in Rafah, Gaza's southernmost city, where more than a million Palestinians seek safety, as negotiators aim for a temporary ceasefire ahead of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. My hope is by next Monday we'll have a ceasefire. A breakthrough is key for President Joe Biden as he faces angry Democrats horrified by the Gaza death toll. He won Tuesday's Democratic primary election in Michigan, home to a large Arab-American constituency, but faced opposition from the Listen to Michigan campaign. It mobilized people to vote uncommitted to pressure Biden to back a permanent ceasefire. One of them is Palestinian-American Adam Abu Salah, who worked on Biden's 2020 campaign. We thought he would be somebody that would lead this country with humanity and compassion, uh, but instead it's been, uh, he's been leading with hypocrisy. Nationally, Arab and Muslim Americans are not a significant voting bloc. 
but the size of the uncommitted vote in Michigan will signal how strongly Americans reject Biden's Gaza policies as they represent other groups in the president's coalition. Minority voters, young and progressive Democrats, including anti-war Jewish voters. Noura Siddiqui, assistant professor in the Muslim Studies program at Michigan State University's political science department via Skype. Higher up Democrats assume that Democrats are going to show up to vote and are going to show up to vote for Biden because the option, the other option is so um, horrific and, and, and fear inducing. But that also frustrates voters because they feel like they've shown up a year after year and that their perspective isn't, isn't being heard. Some American Muslims say even the alternative can't be worse than Biden. Progressive Democrat Samra Lukman is part of the abandoned Biden campaign. To have somebody like me today sit before you and say, I'm willing to accept a Trump presidency on the opposite side of the spectrum in order to oust Biden from office, it's really a testament to how bad this president has failed. Another testament, U.S. Air Force senior airman Aaron Bushnell set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in protest Sunday. The White House called his death a horrible tragedy. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said they understand the frustration from supporters of the Palestinian cause. We understand uh, what this means uh, to this community, and the president understands that too. So we care very much about, what, uh, about that and what the community again is going through. But Biden's critics say he's not listening, despite various polls showing that a growing number of Americans support a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. James Zogby, president of the Arab American Institute, via Zoom. They're listening to donors and they're listening to pressure groups. Um, and, uh, and so where is the power center in the party? It's with the establishment. Where is the majority of the vote in the party? It's with the progressive wing. It's with those who feel that justice and peace are not being well served by the current policy. Without a drastic change in Biden's support for Israel, Zogby said it will be difficult to persuade Arab-American voters, a key constituent in Michigan in the November election. It doesn't take too many votes to lose the critical swing state. In 2016, former President Donald Trump won it by less than 11,000 votes. Patsy Widakuswara, Viewing News. And now to Europe. The European Union should consider using profits from frozen Russian assets to buy military supplies for Ukraine. That's what European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said on Wednesday. She also said that Europe needs to build up its own defense industry. The AP's Karen Chamas has more. Laying out her vision of the new strategy to members of the European Parliament in Strasbourg, France, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said, And the risks of war should not be overblown, but they should be prepared for. And that starts with the urgent need to rebuild, replenish and modernize member states' armed forces. Europe must spend more, spend better, spend European. The Russian invasion has exposed glaring weaknesses in Europe's arms manufacturing capacities. Reluctant to invest in staff and equipment without firm orders, the defence industry has been slow to ramp up production, most notably of the artillery shells that Ukraine so badly needs. I'm Karen Chamas. A summit is taking place in the capital of Albania, aiming to increase cooperation between Ukraine and the Western Balkan countries. Meanwhile, French President Emmanuel Macron announced that he would allow Western troops to be sent to Ukraine in the future. 
VOA correspondent Anna Chernikova has the details from Kyiv. Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in the capital of Albania on Wednesday for the summit with the states of the Western Balkans. Edi Rama, Prime Minister of Albania, said before the beginning of the summit that the Western Balkans are ready to contribute to the Ukrainian fight against Russia amid European and Western delays and restrictions on aid. President Volodymyr Zelensky and the head of the Albanian government signed an agreement of friendship and cooperation, and the two leaders discussed Ukraine's defense needs and possibility of joint weapons production. During the summit, President Zelensky said, Every nation can succeed in defense when different nations cooperate and people are motivated enough to be resilient. And we propose to combine and strengthen such our experience. We are proud that there are about 500 defense companies operating in Ukraine in different areas and each of them adds strength, but it is not enough to win Putin. He also proposed to increase the cooperation between Kyiv and Western Balkan states. And we see the problems with supply of ammunition, which are affecting the situation on the battlefield. And we are interested in co-production with you and all our partners. Our governmental team will present the details and we propose to hold a special Ukrainian Balkans Defense Industry Forum in Kyiv or in one of your capitals. Experts believe this event and President Zelensky's visit to Albania is an important step to the development of cooperation between the countries and strengthen Ukraine's position in the Balkan region. Meanwhile, French President Emmanuel Macron shared the idea he would allow the sending of Western troops to Ukraine in the future, although he emphasized that there is currently no consensus among the allies on this issue. It was later explained that there was no question of the participation of foreign troops in hostilities. Several European states and NATO emphasize that they do not plan to send troops to Ukraine. At the same time, the head of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Lithuania, Gabrielius Landsbergis, says that Macron's idea about the possibility of the deployment of ground troops on Ukrainian territory by allies deserves attention. The ex-chairman of the Munich Security Conference, Wolfgang Ischinger, also believes that the debate on the introduction of Western ground troops into Ukraine is appropriate. Estonian Reserve Major General Nim Vali called such discussions of European leaders a signal for Russia. Anna Chernikova, VOA News, Kyiv. You're listening to Flashpoint Global Crises from the Voice of America. I'm Steve Karish in Washington. The $95 billion foreign aid package, which was approved by the U.S. Senate earlier this month, remains stalled in the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Even though not passing, it is jeopardizing the delivery of $60 billion in aid to Ukraine to help it defeat Russia. Congressional leaders met with U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday to discuss the impasse. VOA's congressional correspondent Catherine Chipson has more. As Ukrainians bury their dead and mark the second anniversary of the Russian invasion... Warning from the President of the United States 
to U.S. lawmakers. I think the consequences of inaction every day in Ukraine are dire. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson saying he will not bring the $95 billion foreign aid package, which also includes $14 billion in aid for Israel and $4.8 billion for Indo-Pacific partners, including Taiwan, to combat Chinese aggression until the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border is secured. The first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. I, I believe the president can take executive authority right now today to change that. A bipartisan agreement to make changes to U.S. immigration law in return for aid to Ukraine fell apart after months of negotiation due to Republican objections. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he called directly on Johnson to consider his role in history. If you don't do the right thing, whatever the immediate politics are, you will regret it. But many congressional Republicans doubt that a new round of U.S. aid to Ukraine will have an impact. Republican Senator Ron Johnson. The reality we have to face is that Vladimir Putin will not lose this war. Democrats do have the option of using a procedural maneuver to bypass Republicans, directly bringing the foreign aid bill up for a vote on the House floor. Democratic Representative Jamie Raskin tells VOA that maneuver has the support to succeed. The discharge petition would have the signatures of a majority of members of Congress saying, get this bill out of committee, put it on the floor, and let's have an up or down vote. House lawmakers come back into session Wednesday, but will immediately have to work on funding the U.S. government past the March 1st and 8th deadlines. Catherine Gibson, VOA News. So, as we've heard, political divisiveness in the United States is having far-reaching global consequences. And it's not just the inability to decide on foreign aid, but also migration, climate policy, and a host of other international issues that require the United States to act with one voice, with one policy. So, how divided is the United States, really? My next guest says that it's more polarized now than at any time since the Civil War. Bruce Stokes is an associate fellow with Chatham House. Well, what we see, and you know, there's much loose talk uh, in political circles and in the press about, oh, we're more divided than we've ever been since the Civil War. But the Civil War led leads to images of gray troops fighting blue-clad troops and on the battlefield. What you see is that some of these divisions on gun control or abortion or whatever disturbingly divide along the same lines as the Civil War. In other words, states that were in the Confederacy predominate on one side of these views, and states that were in the Union at the time, in 1860, uh, have a different set of views. Now, of course, it's an inapt application but if you look at that divide, there's a sharp divide between what were northern states and southern states in the Civil War. And if you look at it even more closely, states that voted for Donald Trump in 2020 predominate among states that were identified with the Confederacy uh, during the Civil War and states that voted for Joe Biden predominate among those 
uh, states that were in the North during the Civil War. So the analogy with, with the Civil War actually holds in a, in a bizarre way. If the Civil War had gone differently, perhaps it didn't start and the South was able to create their own country or if the Union lost, the ramifications globally wouldn't have been as big as they are today if the United States is not able to speak with one single voice. I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that in an alternative history, uh, if the South had become an independent country. It would have been an agricultural exporter. It would have exported cotton, et cetera. It wouldn't have industrialized. But uh, it probably would have had an economy that functioned on the backs of slavery, of course. But uh, today, if the U.S. cannot act and speak with one voice, uh, it sends, uh, I think, all the wrong signals to the world. we are no longer the country we once were at the immediate aftermath of World War II. At that point, we accounted for about 60% of the world economy uh, because Europe and Japan were destroyed. We are still the world's biggest economy. We are still the world's biggest military force. But relatively, we aren't as powerful as we were back then because China has risen, Japan has risen. Europe has risen. Uh, That's all good because it has made for a more stable world, but it means that our ability to dictate to the world what we think is the best way to proceed on any series of issues uh, is much less than it was before. So when we also then don't speak with a single voice, we have less power and we we don't speak with a single voice internally. Then the perfect example would be the problems we're having with getting support for Ukraine uh, through the Congress. Europe has stepped up a bit. That's good. But without our help, Ukraine will have great difficulty surviving. And um, in prior times, immediately after World War II, that was not the case. We created the Marshall Plan. We helped rebuild Europe. Um, and it was on the backs of American taxpayers and voters, but we supported that. We are divided on that issue today. Do you get the sense that both sides of this political divide still want the United States to be the leader in the world? They just differ on how to get that done, or if one side or the other doesn't think the United States should be a world leader in these issues? Well, I think if you ask an average American, not a politician or a foreign policy expert, uh, they would say, well, of course, we're the, we're the leader in the world. Uh, we don't have the leverage to do that, the influence to do that, the power to do that. And we have even less influence when we are divided. I think, to, more specifically to answer your question, I think there are people who believe that we can lead even if we aren't willing to spend money or take strong positions on various issues. And I think there there is a growing number of people, both voters and the politicians they elect, who are tired of bearing that burden, who want to 
a step back from the world. We have a long tradition in the United States of isolationism. So what's the answer to that? Is it education for children? Is it news to the public? How do we bridge that gap? How do we get people to see the bigger picture? I think your point is well taken that uh, people's news consumption affects part of this. Remember, in the post-immediate post-war period, there were three television networks in the United States, and more or less, they all had a centrist point of view. Now we have multiple news sources, and you can get the extreme left or the extreme right. Um, there is the issue of education, um, and uh, I think that's an ongoing struggle to, to make sure that young Americans have a better understanding of the world. Um, and, um, I think while more Americans are traveling abroad and more Americans have a passport than before, uh, often it's on vacation. Uh, what we need to have is more young people studying abroad. Uh, those numbers have gone up, but they need to go even higher. Uh, because once you spend time in another culture and you're, you're forced to think about your own culture as a result, I think you have a better understanding of uh, the challenges facing the rest of the world as well as the United States. Clearly, this is a uh, very long conversation and we've only just scratched the surface, but I do appreciate your time. Bruce Stokes is an associate fellow with Chatham House. Mr. Stokes, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for your analysis. Thank you. As South Korea continues grappling with the walkout by nearly two-thirds of its doctors, the government says it will send in military and community doctors to bolster the health care system. VOA's Steve Miller has more as a February 29th deadline to return to work looms. Prime Minister Han Duk-soo pleaded with the young doctors to return to work and promised to listen to their concerns about working conditions. Resident and intern doctors left their posts last week, protesting against a government plan to boost the number of medical school admissions to address a shortage of doctors. The walk-on has been disrupting services at major hospitals, where emergency rooms have turned away patients, and surgeries and other procedures were canceled or postponed. Han says the government will deploy 150 public health doctors and 20 military doctors to help alleviate the strain in the system adding that patients are anxiously awaiting for the doctor's return. The government warned it could also suspend the licenses of doctors who do not comply with the back-to-work order and could pursue prosecution. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol says that he does plan to go ahead with increasing the number of students admitted into medical schools to improve health care in South Korea and says there was no justification for the protests this reform has triggered. Senior doctors and private practitioners have also opposed the government plan to increase new medical school admissions, saying the medical community was not sufficiently consulted. Yoon has said that the plan, which has widespread support among Koreans, was not up for discussion. The protest is over the government plans to raise South Korea's yearly medical school admission caps by 2,000 from the current 3,058. But doctors have said that medical schools can't handle that many new students. They also say doctors locked in greater competition could conduct unnecessary medical treatment, thus posing a burden on public medical expenses. The enrollment plan is meant to add up to 10,000 doctors by 2035 to cope with the country's fast-aging population. Steve Miller, VOA News.
And that's going to wrap up today's show. There's more VOA coverage 24 hours a day on our website, voanews.com, and across our social media platforms. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thanks for listening. Until tomorrow, Steve Karish. Stay up to date with VOA Podcasts. Each weekday, International Edition covers the world's biggest stories, while Flashpoint Iran and Flashpoint Ukraine examine their respective regions in depth every week. 